as long as those mistakes are happening and they're not big mistakes that are going to destroy the business, there's more value in that learning and that team development than I think there is in avoiding the mistake. We got obsessed, obsessed with the customer experience. And what I mean by that was, you know, wanting to be more than just a product for the customer. This is the ProCo 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor, hosting ProCo 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs. Today's episode features Ian McGregor, CEO of Scratch Labs. Ian was a guest on ProCo 360 almost three years ago. And when I saw a sign for the Scratch Labs Cafe in Boulder, it reminded me of how much I'd enjoyed meeting Ian. But back then it was via Zoom during early COVID. So glad to have Ian here in the studio today. Scratch Labs has continued to grow since we first talked. And I recall that Ian had said that he had become CEO sort of by default. I immediately became curious about how he has evolved as a CEO and how his approach may have changed. So we decided to get back together and talk about that. Ian, great to see you here in the studio. Thanks, Dave. Look forward to talking with you. Yeah, you know, it wouldn't be fair to the current listeners, even if they go, and by the way, listeners, you should go back and listen to to our podcast uh, originally. Just search Scratch Labs at the Proco 360 website but or in your app. But it, it would be unfair if we didn't go through the origin story in this episode, that whole secret drink mix thing. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, happy to touch on it, Dave. Um, so Scratch Labs was really born out of pro-cycling. And if you go back at this point, uh, almost 15 years ago, um, I was a, a pro-cyclist and ra- racing for a, a team that was based over in Europe. And my now business partner, uh, Alan Lim, who's got a PhD in exercise physiology, was the sports science director for that team. And, you know, ultimately, Alan's job was to help, you know, the riders, of which I was one of, um, you know, do our best, be our best, perform our best. And, you know, there's sort of this, maybe I would say misnomer in sport that that is really about these marginal gains, right? I think society gets really excited about technological breakthrough, uh, wind yeah, tunnel. New Lycra and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Carbon fiber wheels. Uh, well, that's you know. probably more important than Lycra. Yeah, but yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, the reality of that was that it was probably more about bottlenecks and it was more about basic life bottlenecks, uh, you know, almost sort of think high school home economics class. It was about, um, you you know, a bunch of 20-something-year-old, 30-something-year-old Americans, uh, British, Australians, primarily on the team I was racing for, who are homesick, right, who are trying to live in mainland Europe and are struggling with the culture, struggling to sleep enough, struggling to eat the right food. And Alan really took this back-to-basics approach. And um, one of the places where that landed was with our sports nutrition products. And, um, you know, some of the stuff that we had, unfortunately, wasn't all that great. Um, And he tried to make his own. And, you know, really starting from a place of science, uh, but having access, you know, to a a real life laboratory uh, with all of the athletes who would give feedback, you know, day in and day out. And I also think really importantly now in hindsight, recognizing that there also weren't constraints of trying to commercialize or sell or market something. Uh, He was really able to, you know, have a blank canvas and come up with something and over the course of a few years, develop some recipes that ultimately worked better, tasted better, and that we, you know, ultimately only wanted to use. Mm. And uh, the name Secret Drink Mix came from the fact that, you know, in this case, we had a water bottle uh, that said, you know, a sponsor's name. And, you know, I won't repeat that here. Uh, No disrespect. Uh, Grateful for their support. But, you know, inside was something different. And it was this product that Alan had been making, um, you know, one one mixer at a time, quite literally in a small apartment in Spain. Wow. So uh, so the Secret Drink Mix became what what is now Scratch Labs, right? Yep. And 
and there was a point at which you decided and people were asking for it at a point decided where you decided okay let's make a product let's sell a product right yeah absolutely and i think you know here's where you know for me my personal story uh was one unfortunately of an iliac uh arterial injury that you know abruptly ended my my cycling career and on a you know personal level it was not not fun um i mean a real identity crisis uh, a lot of fear of change, you know, challenges of, you know, how am I going to pay my mortgage? Um, and at the same time, you know, many of my former teammates, many of Alan's colleagues, uh, they were coming back to us and saying, hey, can I get some more of that stuff? Can I get some more of it? And um, I would say reluctantly, you know, we would say yes. And basically what was happening is at first we were mixing it, no joke, you know, hand measured in a KitchenAid mixer. And when, you know, demand from our friends uh, got high enough, uh, we transitioned to this amazing innovative system called a paint bucket and and a paint shaker at McGuckin's Hardware in Boulder, Colorado. Wow. Um, and that was our solution. And, um, you know, that continued to grow. And, you know, fortunately, we were able to, you know, ask questions of the community and, you know, find someone who knew someone who, you know, had a much larger scale operation. And we were able to produce our first, uh, you know, our first large scale production of products. And that was back in 2011. And, you know, as that took off, you know, we realized that the name Secret Drink Mix was probably, (laughs) you know, it was a great joke, a great way to start. But, um, you know, it didn't really connote the belief system that we wanted to bring to a larger brand. And, um, you know, as we we realized that this was, you know, had a chance to be something more than, you know, just a hidden drink mix that, you know, is being used at the Tour de France, um, that we wanted something bigger. And that's where the the name and the branding for Scratch Labs came from. Was it really hidden? drink that was people were using at Tour de France before it even was marketed? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That was not something you told me before. Yeah. So people racing the Tour de France were using this. No one knew the name of it. No one knew where it came from. They just wanted to use it. Yeah. So uh, in 2010, uh, there were four of the 20 teams that used this product that we made. And in that case, I think we made most of it at McGuckin's Hardware. Wow. That's cool. All right. Hey, listeners, I'm going to shift gears here because uh, we're going to move move forward into sort of where Scratch Labs is now and how Ian has evolved. So I encourage you uh, at this point, you know, or when you're done listening to this, go back to the prior uh, podcast that Ian and I did together. You'll learn a lot more of the backstory. But I'm going to shift gears here. And, and I want to talk more philosophically about building a, a product and not a company. I mean, ultimately, your whole ambition wasn't even to build a company, right? It was to create a product. What did that do to actually help you build a company? Yeah, I think it's a great line of thought, Dave. And, you know, for me, I would maybe even distinguish from a product. I think that it comes back to this idea of solving problems. Yeah. And, you know, going back, unfortunately, sorry, (laughs) but to the backstory a little bit. You know, the problem at the time was, you know, we were heavy users of these products and these products quite literally were making us sick. And when you're feeling sick and you need to be consuming something because you need the sodium, you need the carbohydrates, et cetera, um, but you're feeling sick and you don't like it, then, you know, you're not going to reform your best because you're not going to use it. And, uh, you know, so the problem to be solved was pretty simple is let's get something that doesn't make me want to throw up. Um, And I think what we found through solving that problem was that the problem wasn't confined or constrained to, you know, Tour de France athletes or Olympic level athletes, you know, or, or professional cyclists. But that's a problem that you know, I didn't know at the time, but that we have found since, you know, exists for a lot of people, Um, you know, exists for people who are trying to run a 5k with their kids. So, you know, one, there's, there's this old, old line, build a better product, build a better, whatever, uh, the world will be the path to your door. Right. And if you're only focused on product, I mean, there must've been a point where you said, 
you know, okay, yeah, we have a great product, but it's not going to sell itself at a scale that we want to get to, right? To actually make it a business, right? Would Can you remember that point? Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, I know I, and I can, you know, speak primarily for myself, right? I was very ignorant and, um, you know, didn't have probably the foresight or the wisdom that you just expressed. I think we were taking things one day at a time and, you know, we were lucky. I mean, this is just luck, uh, that there was a demand element that was selling the product. Uh, but you're also right in that, you know, within a couple of years, we had been copied, um, by some of the biggest players in sports nutrition and some of the biggest CPG companies out there. Um, again, where I think we were both lucky and maybe we're also willing to just dig in on what seemed right on our own, based on our own values, our own belief set, was that we got obsessed, obsessed with the customer experience. And what I mean by that was, you know, wanting to be more than just a product for the customer. So even though the product is what was solving their problems, we could do it in a way that um, made them feel differently. Um, That's a lot to say. So, all right, you're going to have to unpack that. Yeah, no worries. So I, I think where I'll go with this is, um, you know, a friend of mine, and I would even say somebody I look up to, Bobby Stuckey. Um, Bobby has this great sort of saying, and I'm going to, you know, probably chop this up a little bit. So sorry, Bobby. But he talks about, you know, what's the difference between service and hospitality? And where he goes with that and what has really resonated and stuck with me and frankly what we have brought to our entire team for the entire time or, you know, this company has been in business is this idea that service is what you do to someone. Hospitality is how you make them feel in that act. And so for us, you know, they, somebody could come and they could buy our product or they could buy, you know, the product from a competitor of ours who just copied us. And while those products probably got closer and closer over time, the difference is we can help them in other ways. And, you know, I go back to some of the other quote unquote products we have. We've got three cookbooks uh, that were co-written by Alan and a chef named Bijou Thomas, who was a chef of the pro cycling team that I raced for, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and those cookbooks quite literally have recipes in them for products that somebody can make at home that will replace what we are offering to sell them. But most of the time, most people will do that a little bit and the rest of the time, they're willing to, you know, trade some money for some convenience. Yeah. But by supporting them in that way, by not trying to pull, you know, a hood over their head, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you build trust with a customer. You take care of them. And it's a long-term relationship. It's not one that's based yeah. off of an Instagram ad and a single conversion. Yeah. So talking about conversions, I mean, ultimately, the thing that fascinates me about a business like yours, specialty products, specialty high-end tailored products – is that, I mean, you started with the, the, the secret drink mix, which became Scratch Labs, and then you made a few products. But it strikes me that as competitors come into the market, they see you succeed. So they come in, they copy or imitate in whatever the way they can. I mean, do your initial products become less interesting to your customer segment? Yeah, I mean, the real answer to that is I don't know. Uh, my hypothesis would be yes. But I can also tell you that when we look at our, you know, customer data, which at this point, you know, contains many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, you know, we see that people are coming in and out of sports. And I think that, you know, anecdotally, if we look at our own lives, right, maybe two, three decades ago, people would define themselves as one thing. You know, your friend's dad would be a rock climber. Uh, you know, your friend's mom was a marathon runner, whatever it was. And that's what they did. And they did that for decades. And I think, you know, what we see here now in Colorado, if you just go out the door, is people, you know, they mountain bike in the summer and they, they love rafting. They, you know, might fly fish. Uh, they love snowboarding. I mean, you know, it's a collection of things. And yeah. I think what we found is that that gives us an opportunity because people will come into our ecosystem. Um, we have the ability to educate and support their introduction 
and their adoption and hopefully their mastery, right, of these activities. Yes. Yeah. And then as they as they do start mastering, they start I mean, I notice you've got new products. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got one product I noticed a super high carb uh, drink, yep. which I don't think existed when you and I talked the last time. Is that right? Uh, correct. Yeah. Probably too high in calorie for someone like me. Yeah. But <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Probably too but, high calorie for me too. Yeah. I mean, it you, takes, you have to be a serious athlete yes, to need I mean, that. Does, does evolving to higher and higher end products, uh, maybe even higher price products, nichier products, does that continue to make your brand more attractive to people who take their nutrition, their fitness nutrition seriously? Again, I, we hope so, right? Um, and what we're trying to do yeah. there is, you know, because we isn't just a couple of us now and we have a team, hopefully, yeah. right, we can serve those elite niches um, while at the same time recognizing, you know, that we also want to get more of our products into the hands of more people, like I said, who are trying to do a 5K with their kids. Yeah, you know, but I, I get that. I'm always intrigued, though, by the like the outdoor brands, especially where they – uh, you know, you can pick any of them and they show somebody like climbing Mount Everest and they want you to buy their $200 coat. You know, there's no, in fact, here's a great testimonial uh, from your website talking about this super high carb sports drink. It's the, it's by far the best endurance racing experience I've ever had. I never bonked, never felt underfueled. I honestly can't re- recommend this stuff enough. My only wish is that it was a bit more affordable for that reason. I'll be saving it for the big races and continue to train with more affordable options. I mean, how does that so they love your product, but how does that kind of a testimonial make you feel? Uh, you know, in some ways, incredibly proud, right? That we've yeah. created something that has an efficacy that's higher than anything else they've used. Um, and, you know, I would be lying if I, you know, didn't ignore it or if I was saying I could ignore the second half, right? Um, I think it's unfortunate. Um, the reality of this is, you know, that product in particular, the all of the flavoring comes from real freeze-dried fruit. And, uh, you know, the specific ingredients that we're using – you know, this is not one that we're, uh, you know, pillaging anybody over on margins. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, to make something at that type of efficacy, it costs a lot. Yeah. And that's the reality. Yeah. And and I, my sense is that your customers can, they get that. They appreciate it. Um, hey, this is Proco 360 named Best Colorado Business Podcast in 2021 and 2022. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the podcast featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. My guest today is Ian McGregor of Scratch Labs. I want to thank our sponsors, Kinsley Meetings. By the way, they are our longest running sponsor. The business is growing based on a great reputation for conducting meetings with lots of moving parts. So give them a call. Also, my friends at Via Technologies, those guys are hosting Proco 360 and give me lots of great help around managing this site. Finally, Colorado Biz Magazine. Our partnership is one of building our audiences together. Go to Proco360.com and check out these sponsors. All right. I want to shift gears. Actually, before I shift gears, I got one quick question. I This whole thing started over because I saw Scratch Labs Cafe. What is that about? I mean, I thought you're a consumer products company. Now you've got a restaurant. Yeah. I mean, it's a big question. It's a hard one to unpack. Um, and there are many dimensions here. So, you know, I mentioned or alluded to the cookbooks uh, yeah. that we've got. And, you know, one of the other things in our history is that uh, for about seven or eight years, we ran a food truck um, that we brought to some mm. of the biggest sporting events in the country. And didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, it was it was a really fun, you know, experiment. Um, and ultimately, it started because we didn't have the money to get to all the events we wanted to do from a marketing perspective. And what we did have was the ability to cook for and support athletes. And we knew how to do that with Alan and Bijou and my own experience. Um, what we found, of course, was that, you know, it was an incredible logistics challenge to tow a 12,000 pound uh, food truck. It was a trailer, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, from Arkansas to Monterey, California. 
Um, and those challenges were big. Um, you know, Boulder is an amazing place. And, uh, you know, the Boulder Chamber of Commerce says that there's about 500,000 endurance-oriented tourists a year who come to Boulder. And, you know, our idea, our dream, our vision is that we can serve and support those, you know, those athletes um, as they come visit Colorado. Uh, so they're coming they to you to be marketed. Yeah. It's that's kind brilliant. Of, that's, <laughs> you know, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And, you think, and, and, you know, had I... I didn't put two and two together, but that's really a brilliant connection. This is the mecca of the the core of your customer. I mean, it is absolutely, and it's not that there aren't other places of that course. are hotspots, yeah, yeah, but yeah. absolutely, very interesting. Uh, so, I want to talk about your evolution as CEO and leader because when our, when we first met, you told me about this CEO by default scenario, mm-hmm. but um, that's changed, um, and I want to ask you about that and and. As a new CEO, you know, as you look back, um, and there was just a handful of you and you became CEO. And what do you think you did right early on that, you know, almost any new startup CEO could learn from? Yeah. I mean, first, I probably cringe a little bit when we talk about, you know, CEO of a five-person company. I, 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 <laughs> I don't know that that's real. Um, I mean, in fact, you know, CEO of a 70-person company, I'm not sure that that, you know, really fits, right, with with many of the great leaders in this world. Um, but I think for me, and I, I, I know I've mentioned this, uh, you know, many times, and it's a big part of, of who I am. You know, when we started Scratch, I had never taken a business class. Um, I didn't know anything. Uh, quite literally looked up what a gross margin was on Wikipedia. Hmm. Um, the first time I heard the word EBITDA, I didn't even know what somebody was saying to the point that I couldn't even, you know, Google it to figure out what it was. Um, So I think for me, the first thing would be to ask questions. Um, The second, you know, big one would be to really listen to the team. And we were fortunate to hire some smart people um, who knew a lot, who were able to communicate it well. And, uh, you know, I think the final piece that comes to mind for me is really this expectation, which I think can be hard uh, for people who start their own businesses, but is to let your team members fail. Um, to let them learn from those failures. Can you think of something? I mean, we've made tons of mistakes over yeah, the years. But I mean, can you think of a specific example where you knew a team member was going to fail and you let them? Yeah. I mean, there's some events, you know, that we did early on where, uh, you know, you would see one of our event managers, you know, maybe be out over the front of their skis a little bit and, you know, you know, it's going to be hard and sort of the choice you have is to, you know, to step in and save them. Um, but if you do that, they may not learn. And again, the goal is not to set up a team where you've got to be, uh, you know, babysitting everybody. The goal is to set up a team where people can learn on their own. Um, And as long as those mistakes are happening and they're not big mistakes that are going to destroy the business, there's more value in that learning and that team development than I think there is in avoiding the mistake. Did you know that right away? I mean, did you have that instinct when you were the CEO of a five-person company? I mean, I think, (laughs) you know, being being the CEO of a five-person company, you're not thinking about much. I think it's all reaction. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that I had some really great mentors early on. And one of the pieces of feedback that they gave me often was, you know, pay attention to how much you're talking versus how much you're listening. And, you know, that makes podcasts like this a little hard and a little uncomfortable, but, um, uh, you know, it fits and extrapolates to that. What, what do you, what have you learned in the last few years that like, you wish you had known it way sooner? Yeah. You know, the first thing that comes to mind for me when you ask that question is, is really to be true. I don't even know that I actually know this now. Like I want to know this. I mm. want to believe it with all of my heart mm. is an acknowledgement and understanding of how different people are and that some people thrive in chaos and uncertainty and some people want to follow directions over and over. And some people love the nuance uh, of accounting 
And some people want to be in a sales environment where they're being told no over and over. <laughs> and those, that dichotomy, you know, it's hard to get out of our own world, our own perspective and really believe and trust that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, there are lessons that just are hard to learn, like hard and fast. I had a really successful uncle once that told me I'd made a, I'd made a dumb mistake. And I said, well, I learned my lesson. He goes, no, nah, you only learn your lesson when you do it right the next time. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it sounds kind of like where you, but, but what you just described, that's, that's a continuum of forever. A absolutely. And that's why I think I say, I want to, you know, yeah. to know it. I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, I want to believe it, you know, intuitively. So, so when you were first put in charge mm -hmm. with the title mm -hmm. with five people, now you've got 70, uh, do you like, do you see yourself differently? You know, I'll tell you one thing I have realized is that in some ways I would argue you have to. And I think this is a mistake that I made maybe in the middle, let's say, um, and I'm sure I still make it at some mm -hmm. points, but you have to realize that sometimes people see you differently than you see yourself. And, um, you know, there are certain things that I, I have to be careful, you know, um, and I'm not saying hide something, but just realizing that, you know, thinking out loud um, you know, isn't always appropriate. You no, know, because you could think out loud something that you're really deeply wondering and fearful about. Mm -hmm. And if you're fearful about it, that may not be something you want to share, right? Or you're really screwing something up. You may not want to share that. Absolutely. And you know, what comes to mind for me for this, if you, yeah. you know, bear with me for a second, um, you know, when, when COVID first happened, you know, when it first hit, if you will, in March of, of 2020, um, really had to think a lot about the messaging we were going to bring to the company. And I remember standing up in front of, you know, all of our people and saying, literally, this is where we settled. And I'm not sure this was the right answer, but it's mm -hmm. what we did. Uh, this is how much money's in the bank. These are the projections. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, you know, and there was a certain amount of being honest and admitting mm -hmm. that, you know, I too was scared, but there's also a need to be, you know, I wouldn't say an overly confident or arrogant leader, but to, to, to know that we can figure this out. And that was the duality of the message. It was, you know, this is going to be hard, but we're going to figure it out together. And ultimately that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose in a time of uncertainty, admitting that you're not certain, uh, has an authenticity that I guess would bond a group better than wondering. Yeah. I mean, again, that's, you know, yeah. That's where I go with things. I don't, I don't know yeah, this yeah. for a fact, but. So you yeah. must watch now that you've been, now that you're a seasoned leader of whatever, three, four, five years, uh, depending on when you decide you want to officially, when you be officially became CEO, right? But. I mean, tw 12 years ago. 12 years ago. 12 years ago. Is that yeah. how long? So you were officially CEO 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. All right. So you are seasoned. So when you look at other startups from afar and you must see them all the time and intrigued. In fact, uh, if we have time, I want to talk to you about your speech you're going to give tonight. But uh, when you look at, a, what do you, when you see startups, what do you see that they typically are doing right through your lens and that they're doing typically wrong through your lens? We, that's a hard question. I, I mean, this is a total caveat, but I really try not to judge because the truth is, you know, we don't know the information. We don't have it all. And, you know, even if you were convinced that you knew something, I think you're probably wrong. At least that's my <laughs> opinion. Um, what I would say, though, you know, with the sort of spirit of the question is, you know, there's this idea out there that, that I think primarily or at least most articulately has come from a guy named Vern Harnish who wrote Scaling Up and mm. Gazelles. Uh, and I think he calls it the rule of threes. And it basically goes like whether revenue or people as it triples – 
to get to that next spot, you've got to completely break and then reinvent everything you're doing. And as I look back on what we've been able to do at Scratch, without a doubt, that's been true. You know, as we went from 100 to 300, 300 to say a million, you know, 1 million to 3, 3 to 9, 9 to 27, so on and so forth. Like that, that has been absolutely true. And that's really, really hard um, because we get attached to the things that we've been doing that have worked. Yeah. And you get attached to people who've been doing them who may not be the right people, right? Going forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a question that you've asked uh, earlier today that, you know, sticks with me is, you know, how do you keep growing? And it's, you know, you got to keep learning. You got to keep reading. You got to keep, you know, yeah. stay humble. So stay curious. You know, you seem like a nice enough guy. And, you know, as you triple, 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 people don't always fit, fit, fit. You know, have you had to make some tough changes in actual, you know, leadership? Absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, what I have realized and what I I truly believe is that, you know, fit is mutual. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be a gift back to somebody else. And, you know, we've had some amazing employees and particularly people who, you know, are struggle with change, et cetera, you know, helping them realize that what it is now is not what they want. And then allowing them and helping them transition to somewhere else is a gift. Yeah. You know, I think that's true. Ultimately, they may not feel it at the moment, but ultimately, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what about you, though? A lot of startup CEOs can't scale either. You know, they they aren't the right guy. There aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of people that can scale indefinitely. Yeah, or, or gals, or gals. Yep, excuse absolutely. Me. Yeah. Um, you know, I think first thing is, you know, I don't expect that I'm going to be able to keep going. Um, you know, I expect at some point, at some day, um, either it will be time for me to move on for me, or I will become the bottleneck for the business. Um, you know, I hope that I've got people around me who will say that to me. And I hope that at that time I'm able to, you know, recognize and see that not be defensive and get the heck out of the way. Hmm. Um, you know, the flip side is, again, this is just sort of a personal value for me is, it's really about learning and just genuine curiosity that kind of never goes away. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, I went back to business school, uh, which kind of ruins my funny statement of never taking the business <laughs> class. <laughs> yeah. um, that was then. This is now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, um, you know, that for me uh, was just the next step in trying to better myself and try not to be the bottleneck. Um, and and mm. I'm not saying that that's the magic bullet. I don't know that it is. I mean, there's a lot of talk about, you know, our MBA is good or bad or blah, blah, blah. I, I, I don't know the answer. Yeah. But yeah. I know it changed who I am. I know that it changed how I think. Um, I know that being exposed to, you know, a hundred, um, you know, people in a cohort, 50% of whom weren't born in the U S mm-hmm. um, the vast, vast majority of whom were not entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. uh, many of whom are, you know, world-class physicians, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that changed the way I think. Yeah. But you know, it, it's different because you went back to school I have strong feelings about this. You went back to school to get an MBA after you'd been in the world after you'd been. And so what you were learning you immediately contextualized. I did an MBA. I'd been out in the world for a few years. Um, no real significant responsibilities or anything, but I'd been working for a few years and went back, and um, that helped a lot. And and I I would sense that, you know, it was worth more to you than it is to others who haven't had that sequence that sequence of career. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing makes sense to me. You know, of course, I haven't had that experience and, you know, I've only had mine, so I don't know. I think, you know, the other thing I would say to this is, you know, the the program that I did out at MIT, um, it was amazing because it wasn't a lot of uh, case study. It was a lot of what's the problem you're having in your work right now? Really? And let's bring that in and work on it. And I think that at least from what I have seen, which is not the whole world by any means, that was a unique and novel approach. 
Um, so you brought some of Scratch Labs issues to the class? Absolutely. Yeah. And my, my classmates brought their problems. That must um, have been so exciting. It was fun. I mean, it was yeah. really, really fun. That's cool. Hey, I want to shift gears finally before we wrap up, but I want to remind listeners, uh, this is ProCo360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the podcast featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. This episode is with Ian McGregor of Scratch Labs. Go to ProCo360.com to subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. So last couple of things, you've talked a lot with me in the past about what you view as the collaborative nature of Colorado and a boulder. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, again, my comparison here, right, is yeah, professional well. sports. And, um, you know, even in a team sport like cycling, um, it's not always as collaborative as I would hope it would be. And in some ways, you would, I would probably say it's incredibly cutthroat. Uh, my experience is that business has been nothing like that. And that, um, you know, the natural foods community in Boulder, the outdoors community uh, or outdoor industry community across Colorado, um, people are willing to meet with you. And I am amazed and grateful for, you know, the responses that I've gotten when I've asked people questions and mm. uh, as much as possible, you know, try and pay that forward when people ask for input or help. Yeah. So, so on that, following on, is there something specific you can think of that advice you got that was particularly helpful in that collaborative environment? Yeah. You know, about a year and a half ago, um, our website, right, which is an incredibly important part of our business, uh, both for information and obviously for, you know, conversions and sales, um, was spoofed. And I am not a, you know, I'm not technically inclined in that world. I don't know exactly what happened, but somebody somehow completely copied our website with a website URL that looked like ours. And, um, we were panicking, um, because our, you know, our traffic was disappearing and, you know, we were really worried about what was going to happen to our customers who thought that they were buying from us when buying from this other site. And essentially, you know, through a friend of a friend, I was able to connect with the CEO of digital ocean, a guy named Yancey. Yeah. He's been on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. and, And Yancey did not know me, but was able to connect with me. And what Yancey did was not put me at the front of the line or anything like that. There was nothing, you know, nefarious that happened. But what he did is he connected me with one of his security experts who was able to explain to me what was happening, which then enabled us to formally file the complaint we needed to with his company because his company was hosting this website. Now, of course, they didn't know who it was. But I think that that type of willingness to pick up the phone is a great example, um, you know, and just an incredible, incredibly valuable, you know, sort of community support building, you know, Thing that that's happened. a great. That's a great example. All right, last question. You and I were talking right before we got started. You're giving a uh, what kind of speech tonight? Yeah. So at Car- Mines. Yeah, Carl School of Mines, where I did my undergrad in engineering. Um, they are celebrating the launch of a new entrepreneurship and innovation center. Uh, it's called the Beck Venture Center, sixty-five million dollar building on campus, and uh, we're celebrating that tonight. So, what is your speech going to be about? Um, fifteen minutes. You yeah, told me no notes. Yeah. So, what's this going to be? Yeah. Do you so want to practice the, it now? The, yeah, I probably should. <laughs> uh, the punchline is pretty simple, and I think this may fit for anybody that's listening. Um, you know, the great master Yoda, right? This great teacher that we're all very yes, familiar uh-huh. with has this wonderful line that is really, you know, uh, do or do not, there is no try. Mm-hmm. And while I love Yoda and while I understand where that fits in the movies, um, I don't think that fits for business. I don't think that fits for innovation. I don't think that fits for entrepreneurship. I think that, um, you know, if we are so worried about, you know, failure that the idea of try just doesn't, isn't possible. And, and I, and, and I know we never would have started if, uh, we weren't willing to just try. Wow. I think that's a great note to end on. And I do, you know, I know that line and it's famous and I think your, your comment is poignant. Thanks for sharing that. 
Maybe I'll be at your speech tonight. Hey, I'm your host, Dave Tabor. Today on Proco 360, you've been listening to my conversation with Ian McGregor of Scratch Labs. Good connecting together in studio live. This has been great. Yeah, it's definitely easier this way. Oh, a lot more fun, too. Yeah. Listeners, glad you're here on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast. And if you haven't yet, it's a huge help if you submit a review in your app. Thanks again to show sponsors via Technologies, Kinsley Meetings, and Colorado Biz Magazine. That's the show. Live, work, love Colorado. And that's that. Good call on the Yoda comment to end with. That was cool. Yeah. What? A, and you know what? Your context around that is really quite thought-provoking yeah, yeah. You know? i mean it's real to be clear i mean it's I think it's totally real because i see so many people paralyzed by i don't know what to do mm -hmm. it's like well i didn't know what a gross margin was yeah <laughs> you yeah. know we're selling products <laughs>